Hello and welcome to the Eastern Front. My name is Julia Georgia. I'm with Georgetown University and the Middle East Institute, and I'm joined today by Giselle Donnelly from the American Enterprise Institute and Dalibur Rohash, also from AEI. On our podcast, we talk about the many challenges to European peace that have emerged along a line running from the Baltic to the Black Sea, the Eastern Front, and about why those matter to the United States. If you enjoy this episode, please consider subscribing, rating, and reviewing on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you. Today, it's just us. We haven't done this in a while. We are very much due to do an update and um, a wrap-up in terms of what has happened. And of course, as it is with this war, there's almost too much to talk about. Um, but I think the moment where we should start is talking a little bit about the Russian atrocities. I guess what stayed in people's minds is um, what we've seen from Bucha, uh, what we've seen in terms of on the ground, as well as the disgusting, always eternal Russian responses. It wasn't us. Um, look what the Ukrainians are doing and all of that. Um, and the one thing that I'll say to that, um, just very briefly, is... Um, people have asked oftentimes the question, is this just something local? Um, people going crazy? Um, is this something that we should be surprised about? And I think there's more to it. Um, sure, we can assume that some of the atrocities, whether that's torture or rape, um, are, are local. But when you see those pictures from Bucha, of people being purposefully shot on the streets in front of their houses so that you cannot look away, you cannot walk by and not see. That does seem like it's an order from a bit higher up uh, in the command. And it seems to me that that's an, uh, a message that Russia is sending, not just to Ukraine, but to the West in terms of trying to humiliate us in their own thinking, um, trying to tell us that that's what they're all about. And I'll segue to one thing that I think maybe helps um, in understanding this. Again, I keep having these conversations, but last night at dinner, I was talking to some friends who were asking me some very genuine questions. They said, they asked, why are they doing this? Is this something that you've seen before? And I said, of course, look, um, everybody knows this. This is something that Eastern Europe has seen for decades, if not hundreds of years. Um, there's always a hate um, from Russia towards Eastern Europe and Eurasia and all of that. And then they asked a very genuine question, but why? Why is it um, that they hate you so much? Um, and that was more difficult to, to explain because you can talk about Western values versus Eastern values, but I think that's incomplete. I think it's important to remember the fact that Putin is a personal fan and has 
Um, his he and his apparatus have for many years now tried to reestablish the Stalin cult um, in Russia. And these are the biggest memories um, that we have collectively of, of Russian then Soviet atrocities. So back to that, as an example, Stalin was even crueler to Georgians as a Georgian than to other people. So that's a bit strange to, to comprehend. Um, but I think it's people misunderstand that this is about ethnicity or partially values. I think it's part of what we understand as imperialism in its rawest and most malign form in the sense that their aim has been and is now to subjugate and destroy everything that is resisting, both inside of Russia and outside um, in their near abroad. And so maybe that's a way to help us understand and frame what is going on with these atrocities, what is their aim, and of course, the looking into the future, we kind of know that this is happening in other places. We know that once more cities and towns occupied by Russia will be liberated, we'll see even more of that. We think about Mariupol. So I guess this is the the intro to be made to to what is going on to help us frame and understand we'll see more we've seen more in the past and uh it seems to be a message towards everybody who wants to resist russian totalitarianism well um if i may say in these circumstances uh it's especially powerful witches brew uh of a number of very particular things as well as the sort of traditional history of Russian brutality that uh, that you were describing, Yulia. We remember sort of how this campaign was framed as a denazification effort. So it was intended, mm. it was designed uh, to be not so much a territorial conquest and certainly not a sort of reunification uh, with amongst the Russian people, but almost from the beginning, uh, this idea of filtration, which I think is going to sort of enter our, um, you know, consciousness as one of those terms that is horrifying. Um, filtration camps are sort of the modern version of concentration camps or death camps, I think. Um, but but on top of that. Uh, you have the case of a really badly prepared army that's all but disintegrated, which was not very disciplined to begin with, and whatever discipline they had uh, has been lost. Uh, they've been fighting in extremely difficult circumstances against a, an extremely determined enemy that pops up out of nowhere, you know, probably three quarters of the videos that we see from the battlefield are the results of ambushes. So these guys are, you know, cold, hungry, tired, poorly led, wet, and they're fighting, you know, it's a traditional um, problem for 
especially for badly organized and badly disciplined, conventional armies to fight uh, an irregular foe. So they were ready to be vicious from the start, and the conditions have unleashed that. And apropos of you know how ordered it was, uh, the German intelligence service seems to have intercepted some communications that that suggest in uh, Busha, at least it was. Um, it's hard to say, not having seen the transcripts, but uh, just seen the reports, uh, that there was some intentionality. Let's just call it that uh, to the to the massacres there. So. Um, yeah, the and as we learned from our colleague Fred Kagan yesterday, the likelihood of ongoing similar atrocities <clears throat> is nearly certain and probably on a greater scale than than even Bucha suggests. Maybe one last note on that. I think that the ongoing is also something that explains the arguments that to me seem obvious, but to a lot of people are still questioned um, of why mm, beyond Ukraine, it is common knowledge in Poland and other places that um, if, if Russia doesn't get pinned down and stopped, um, like, deep stop, let's just put it that way, um, this will go on, um, this will go into other regions. It leads into the disgusting declarations of Lavrov or Medvedev of, you know, from Vladivostok to um, to Lisbon, um, people need to be denazified. Right. Um, I think this helps us understand why there are these fears that that if not stopped, they will just continue and continue into the West. If I may just uh, add my, my my two cents to this, so so I was struck by one thing that Fred said yesterday, namely um, that we typically think of genocide in the past tense, and uh, from the perspective of a of a historian, sort of you know you look at the genocide backwards, and and you know it's. It's all obvious once you know the answer, right? The sort of rhetoric of dehumanization, you know, the the talk of cockroaches in Rwanda, the Nazi propaganda throughout the 1930s, and then there is this this sort of endpoint. And this is different, as he pointed out, because this is a genocide that's going on in real time, in in present and future tense, in a in a way. Um, and yet some people might be still in denial, even looking at the you know Russian sources, Russian op-eds talking about how Ukraine is not a real nation, how you know people who think of themselves as of Ukrainians are either deluded or by now I guess they are assumed to be Nazis by sort of the dominant line in 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 Russian media and and so so I think with the benefit of hindsight people will look at this and will see will say well how is how was it not obvious that this would result in mm. in acts of genocide whether in Bucha and I worry that we might see much more of that in in other places if if indeed Russians are chased out of of eastern Ukraine and 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 something 
some sort of thorough investigation of this does take place. Uh, the second point is is that it's, it's not surprising that you know at the same time as 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 as, as, as the Russians are sort of peddling this this dehumanizing rhetoric about the Ukrainians, they are also denying that there is anything happening, mm. any wrongdoing on, the, on on their part. There was there was one uh not not a journalist, I don't know how to call these people from from a, a Russian state TV embedded with, with Russian units. It was reporting from um from northern Ukraine. He was saying that he was in Bucha with, with the Russian units and he said there were no dead people, and this clearly was a sort of Ukrainian-British operation <laughs> to bring in the dead bodies, which was immediately seized upon by necrophiliac Western media. So, you know, that's that's the sort of stuff that they are feeding the domestic audience with. Um, that's not surprising. What is surprising, though, to me is, I have to say, a degree of lethargy with which this was accepted in the West. I mean, yes, we were shocked. Yes, these images were horrifying. Yes, the initial sort of knee-jerk reaction was that this must be a game changer. Yet, not all that much has changed policy-wise. And the further west you go, really, from Ukraine, the the less willingness there is to to sort of seize on this opportunity to to actually push for for sort of more constructive and 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 more focused policies that could help Ukrainians drive. Uh, the Russians out of Ukraine, which should be the end game for well, us. Before we get to the uh, self-flagellation part of the show, which will no doubt be uh, a long but constructive session, I did want to uh, ask you, you two, and particularly you, Yulia, because I know you've looked at this, uh, um, and that's about the role of the Russian church and sort of mm. inflaming emotions here the the you know the head of the church i mean it's a stiff competition for who's given the most incendiary speeches yeah uh or you know said the most incendiary things in russia but if he's not the the top he's a contender for that for that title and um, he seems to be getting more so as the Russian frustrations on the battlefield and as the war continues. Yeah, it's um, Kirill is certainly a big star here and he's uh, he and his church have played play now again, not to a surprise, a big um, role in all of this. We've at least seen reports from his um, latest um, disgusting speech, but um, we also have to understand that, um, this is, again, part of Russian Empire thinking. They have built the idea of building an empire post-Soviet Union, um, walking away from what was um, what was a taboo, Sovietism, um, communism, all of that, and have compensated that with church. Um, now, we all know that Kirill is um, former KGB and, and all of that, but but beyond that, the church has played such an essential part for decades in the rebuild of their 
of their empire ideas, starting with, and here's, um, I drop them very rarely, but if anyone wants to follow that or read into that, the be- best book on this is Dima Adamski's uh, Russian Nuclear Orthodoxy, where he basically um, traces this down back to the early 90s when the Soviet Union was falling apart and when the nuclear scientists were basically starving. Um, they had no more resources. And the one that the one um, body that came to their help was, and this sounds very odd, but this is a hundred percent Russia. Um, the one body that came uh, came to help, very visibly with um, with uh, um, everything that they had in terms of resources was the Orthodox Church. And um, the Orthodox Church has sort of tried in the 90s to rebuild military morale. Um, they've worked um, hand in hand on the conventional side, as well as on reestablishing the idea of empire based on whatever they had left at that point, which were nukes. And, um, and this into the future um, has worked again hand in hand. Uh, this is something that gets easily forgotten, but in Syria, in 2015, when Russia started um, started being present on the ground and um, and really launched their military intervention in Syria, among the first that landed there before the ships came and the planes and a bit of land forces was were paratroopers hand in hand with the Orthodox Church in Syria, um, and so that's a good example of how. Um, the military and the the power of the idea of empire is unconceivable without the Orthodox Church. And so that mm, helps us, in essence, explain why Kirill plays now such a central role, says all these disgusting things, and, uh, and basically enables or encourages actively people to sacrifice themselves for this idea of um, destroying everything that is not part of how they define themselves. And that includes actually in, in again, one of these crazy Russian paradoxes, that includes religion too, because Ukrainians are pretty religious and pretty orthodox. Um, so are many countries in the region. So it's not a denial of, you know, the modern church, the Catholic church. It's a denial of everything that is not Russian Orthodox church. And the last thing I'll say to this and how, how this explains a little bit the relationship or adds to the explanation of the relationship between Ukraine and Russia and how that, um, how that is being seen. One of the biggest events um, that I looked into when I was doing research on that, one of the biggest events in the bilateral relationship has been that after 2014, um, the Ukrainian Orthodox Church um, sought what is known as autocephaly. So unlike the Catholic Church, where the head is in the Vatican, um, in the Orthodox churches, the head is at the national level. Um, <clears throat> and a lot of countries already had autocephaly. Um, so the head of the Orthodox Church in Romania is the Romanian Orthodox leader, etc., 
Um, and um, that's what the Ukrainians have um, have been pursuing. And it went on for a couple of years, including with staging protests in um, Istanbul, uh, where this was decided, including with heavy lobby, hand-in-hand uh, Orthodox Church with diplomats, um, because that's also an old Russian tradition until the 19th century, their diplomacy or their yeah their, their their diplomacy abroad their missions abroad were mainly led by church not by civilians so they combined um, this kind of fused approach to lobby and fight against Ukrainian autocephaly and Ukraine managed to get it and this is where the story stopped in the sense of Kirill was particularly upset about that, of course, because he lost um, he lost a, a big bunch, and that works with money and corruption and how I, votes I are being know, spent. I should have known better to introduce this subject. So. Oh yeah, all right, I'm but stopping right here. Look, I do think it's really maybe we could do a show on it in the, in, in the future because it is such a seems to you know, secular Western imagination such an odd thing, but. Uh, Dalibor, let, let's get on to the thrashing ourselves and particularly our German friends. Why don't you take the lead on that? I'm happy to talk about, uh, you know, church goers in Russia and the influence of the Orthodox Church. Right. I, I think uh, we should return to it. I mean, I, I, you know, I mentioned Rwanda earlier, and, yeah. and there is also an interesting role that uh, – Belgian missionaries played in the build-up to the genocide in sort of consolidating certain racist ideas in 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 in, in Rwanda. But let's yeah, let's leave that for 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 for, for another for another time. Uh, so I have a piece of good news. Um, the uh, the Prime Minister of Slovakia, Eduard Heger, together with the President of the European Commission, are on a train somewhere in Ukraine, headed to Kiev and. He announced earlier today that Slovakia was indeed sending its S-300 um, anti-air system to to Ukraine. He hinted at uh, our allies supplying us with something else, which didn't say explicitly what it was, whether it was a sort of U.S. Patriot system or, or, or something else. There is obviously a sort of NATO sort of grouping that's, that's that's moving to eastern Slovakia to, to reinforce the the eastern flank. So this might be a part of that. Uh, I also saw earlier today that Australia is sending its Bushmaster vehicles, which Yay. sounds like something you used to like, you know, shoot wallabies with a machine gun. But, <laughs> but, but apparently they, they look like sort of decent vehicles that could be of some. They're, some they're huge. They're sort of like the mine-protected vehicles from Iraq. They're big sort of like armored cars. Isn't uh, yeah. that, yeah, go, go it's on. It's kind of anomalous uh, in this case, so it'll be useful since the, the Russians have apparently mined everything in the wake of their uh, withdrawal. But it's only, the, the Aussies are only sending 20 vehicles okay. and uh, it's, you know, it's a gesture. So, so, but, so, so uh, the Czechs are sending the T-72B tanks, which yeah, apparently but again, are it's only outdated from the 80s. Like they're not really using them anymore themselves. Um but again, only but, a couple dozen. But the question vehicles. is uh, whether that's all that's currently sort of flowing to Ukraine in terms of sort of 
systems that could be used for not not just to defend Ukrainians but also to sort of push them push push the Russians away, or you know whether the the, the remaining aid that's flowing in is sort of low key and kept away from from public gaze from for understandable reasons. I don't have a good sense of that. Like what what, what the United States, the UK is sending in. Yeah, if you're going to move dozens and dozens. And what is needed is more than, you know, to have tanks and fighting vehicles and stuff like that. You just can't slip that in mm-hmm. under the the radar. It's just to, and the mountains of ammunition that will be r- yep. required for artillery pieces and, and so on and so forth. I mean, the, ev- the evidence that we're, you know, taking a pass on this opportunity is mounting in a very distressing way. Mm-hmm. Let's just, um, this is just a small interference, but I think we need to say this right here. Um, The link between what Russia is doing in terms of atrocities on the ground and the weapons is that's the only thing that can stop them. And the second thing here is something that I've seen, you know, we had this completely fake debate about what is, and we keep having it, it's it's kind of schizophrenic about offensive and defensive weapons. There's no such thing, no clear delineation, neither in theory or literature nor in reality. Um, but, but the other parallel that we've made for a long time and we continue to make is let's send them whatever we have of old Soviet stuff stockpiles. Now, isn't this a moment, and maybe the Australians are, are heading towards that, isn't that a moment, and the Brits, isn't that a moment where we should stop saying this and we should really start talking about all the modern stuff that they need and that they have no trouble using? It's not a matter of training. That's another fake idea that, that we've propagated in, in the online space. Um, well, so. Yeah. Let's just a quick one. I mean, it's not the operational training. You know, driving a tank is driving a tank tank, and it's a heck of a lot easier to drive an M1 than it is to drive a T72. Um, the question is the the logistics and the mm-hmm. the maintenance aspect mm-hmm. of it. Um, again, you need a you know mountain of spare parts and you'd be able to change the tracks on a 75 ton tank and you need a uh, not even the ukrainian john deers are probably capable of towing (laughs) uh you know an m1 in for repair or 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 out of the mud um but that at some point uh, here's here's a hypothetical for you two Imagine that even in 1994, in exchange for giving up their nukes, we had supplied uh, Ukraine with the kind of military that the Poles are in the process of building. The Poles bought 48 F-16s. They bought Patriots. Uh, they are just have bought uh, 300 uh, M1 Abrams tanks. You know, that's going that's going. <laughs> That's that's probably enough just combat power, not simply to defend Poland, but to reclaim Belarus if the the need arose for it. There's no reason to think. I mean, 2014 would never have happened if if such a um, uh, you know, and 
again, added some anti-ship missiles, some European-made frigates so that there was a real Ukrainian Black Sea fleet. We just wouldn't be having these conversations now. And you're right. Um, getting stuff that they can use today is good, but they're going to need stuff next week as well. And at some point, pivoting from, you know, uh, scraping the uh, up the bones of the ex-Soviet uh, military uh, is just not going to be feasible. And we need, if you want to create the kind of ground-gaining capabilities uh, with a lot of firepower that the Ukrainians will need to reclaim their sovereign territory, um, you know, that's a bridge that we've got to start getting ourselves over. I'm sorry for the for the lecture, but uh, you, you pushed a hot button for me. Let me push another one. Germany. We saw that Olaf Scholz delayed the tanks. He delayed the coal um, ban. So you tell me. So I mean, I have I have one thought on that, uh, which is which is that like in my own writing, I tend to think of the EU as a body which is primarily driven by member states and national governments and 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 i like it that way and i i see too often european institutions being unhelpful or getting in the way or just not being constructive this time around uh is very different this time Isn't around yeah. you know like i'm going to sound like samantha power but but <laughs> it's the european institutions that are on the right side of history ponder lion is traveling with borel as we speak to kiev as well small note yeah yeah and they are on the same train with with the slovak oh, pm i didn't realize um so european parliament voted this week uh, overwhelmingly uh, mm. in favor of a of a of an embargo on russian energy 513 votes for the embargo, uh, 22 against, 19 abstentions, mostly from the sort of far right, far left, far left uh, fringes. The commission has been quite strong, including on the embargo stuff. So Borrell and von der Leyen were saying that they are working on it. Um, and then they got undercut by the Germans. And apparently, so there is a meeting of uh, foreign affairs ministers next week, and it's not supposed to be on the agenda in spite of Borel saying that it would be on the agenda so that's clearly our friends in Berlin just 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 pulling the carpet from from under um, the commission on this which is rather saddening I see Giselle's angry face so tell well, us more. well okay I mean so the, one of the big questions to come out of this is what to do about Germany I mean this is um they are disqualifying themselves and they are inducing certainly, you know, the United States and probably Great Britain as well to consider ways to contain Germany uh, in Europe and to work more directly with uh, Eastern European countries and, and so on and so forth. It is to allow Germany to cripple our security interests in this case, um, would be a huge uh, f failure, and the Germans are going to do what the Germans are going to do, but um, at some point, th they're ruling themselves 
out of um, you know out of real consideration as a as a major as a major power. I mean, and imagine how problematic the Germans would be in the Taiwan crisis, for example. This is not an indicator of alliance solidarity coming out of Berlin. One last thing on this, um, just to put it into a European perspective, and I'm curious what both of you think of that, is um, I, I'm fully on the train of Germany um, negatively affecting our security priorities. But I wonder to what extent we're focusing on Germany alone when what we've seen from Macron in the middle of elections is pretty bad too. I mean, I don't know how much France is helping with military aid um, that hasn't been in the news at all. And then um, when Poland and others have criticized Macron for giving endless therapy sessions over the phone to um, the cr criminal Putin um, and that this should stop after Bucha, at least. Uh, Macron said um, Poland is trying election interference in, uh, in France and um, that he continues to do the right thing um, by talking to Putin. So Is, are we focusing just on Germany because because everybody is, or is it a problem with with leadership within the EU, Germany, and France? So, so I think that two parts to this question. One has to do with the extent to which other uh, prospective Putin first heirs are hiding behind Germany. Mm -hmm. And I think that's that, that 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 that's a big big issue here where like you know it's the default answer from the Hungarians to say that we are not really doing anything else from 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 from, from the Germans. Like we have an interest in a constructive relationship with Russia. We need Russian natural gas. We are not going to hurt our own people and we want to stay out of this war. And and they and that position is tenable only insofar as they can hide behind behind Scholz. So so I think that's a big massive part of the problem. Um as for the French, I worry that uh President Macron might be see, seeing polling that we are not seeing and that has him on his feet. I mean, yeah, look at the, the Hungarian election, I thought was was extremely telling that that contrary to what some of us, including myself, for, for a while assumed, uh, you can actually, you know, be on Putin's good side and still do well politically in, 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 in Europe, in spite of everything we've seen, in spite of Bucha uh, and and everything else and when you look at i mean the publicly available polling in the in the french election in the second round it looks it looks really like really he's so i'll be yeah. i'll be willing to cut macron some slack at this at this particular juncture you're gonna love yeah. marine Le Pen. <laughs> <laughs> exactly if you if you think this is bad just just wait until until may and uh i mean that would be i mean that would really be the end of it Yeah, like the end of like like we can pack our bags, you know, just get off this link and and just just get a different job somewhere. Well, uh, or waiting tables, or because that would be the end of like any sort of coherent European anything, whether on Russia or China or. Uh, the... Well, but I mean, okay, I think maybe 
here's a subject to end on is the is the subject of mere, pure speculation about future European security arrangements. You will both no doubt remember Zelensky's speech to the U.S. Congress in which he sort of suggested that there, that, uh, and he said, you know, repeatedly, um, to quote Macron, that, that NATO is brain dead or words to that effect. Um, again, just, just thinking from a, a U.S. perspective, can there be viable security institutions that sort of bypass the problem of France and Germany? Um, I, I don't think that that's impossible, but I'd be interested to hear what, and, and, and the, maybe the, for you. would re require, uh, I think, a much more forward-leaning sort of U.S. role than the one we've seen uh, uh, under, uh, under the past, like, three administrations. Yeah, I'm going to, now, the whole thing depends on assuming that, uh, you know, the United States remembers what it's supposed to do. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, so if we can't remember what we're supposed to do, you know, in some ways it doesn't matter how bad the Germans and the French are. Gosh, that's a pretty dark note to end on. Um, but, but I, yeah, I think there's, there's some food for thought there. It, and it very much depends on, I guess, both sides of the Atlantic looking away from Germany and France here in Washington, DC about being resolute and then, and then coalitions of the willing of those we know um, that are resolute. I maybe the another dark or food for thought <laughs> um, to end on is my biggest fear is that for the weeks to come we will see Russia putting more weight into destroying as much as possible. And then around V-Day or after that, um, push uh, Western leaders to pressure um, Zelensky for a ceasefire. That's kind of my biggest fear. Yeah, I mean, that, that picks up a note that, that Fred sounded yesterday and I would wholeheartedly agree with, um, you know, the temptation to play peacemaker, great statesman, you know, uh, Richard Holbrook in the Balkans or Henry Kissinger between uh, uh, Nixon opening to China, you know, solving the, uh, you know, creating peace at a stroke. Is has always been catnip for American and Western statesmen. Uh, you know, um, uh, German <laughs> chancellors. When German chancellors go to Minsk, it's always a bad outcome. Um, but especially as there's, uh, you know, the, as what looks like a pause uh, between the Battle of Kiev and whatever is to come, it creates a an opportunity for, uh, you know, people who would like to make their name as peacemakers, quote yeah. unquote, uh, to do their worst. And I think it's worth articulating why this is so dangerous, because um, it is possible that, that, that Zelensky and the Ukrainian government would be either pressured or 
or through a mishap of some sort, you know, would agree to a ceasefire or a peace deal uh, that might like erode their own claim to legitimacy. Yeah. I mean, you have you have a population that has seen unspeakable sort of scenes of suffering and 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 and, and, and destruction uh, that might not be disposed to just make peace with a status quo in which Russia annexes parts of Ukraine and on a on a on a on a on a permanent basis. And once that happens, I think the sort of story of Georgia should be a warning in a way that yeah. you have this you know very short punitive war in 2008 and uh then it sort of looks from our perspective that sort of Georgia has been left to its own devices and lived its own sort of political life. Uh but it has become it has remained vulnerable to Russian influence, Russian interference. Now there is a sort of, you know, Russia-aligned government uh, that, you know, ordinary Georgians don't particularly like. And it's all back to that sort of post-Soviet dysfunction and corruption and, 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 and mess. And, like, we shouldn't be kidding ourselves. Like, that can happen in Ukraine, too. I mean, that was, you know, that, that was for a long time the baseline of sort of, you know, right. Ukrainian <laughs> independence. And, 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 and so we should be... Like really, sort of doing everything we can to strengthen the position of 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 of, of Zelensky, make sure that he sort of walks out of this uh, as you know on 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 the winning side, and and then can focus on a reconstruction of the country and 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 you know like getting its act together and 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 becoming a sort of prosperous European democracy whether or not it joins the eu or you know that 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 might be almost secondary like you know if you're yeah. norway like you don't particularly worry about being in the eu or not right. not or, or or not and so that's the situation we want the ukrainians to be in but it's they're very far away from that i think this is this is our cue to end and it's yes well we're about to nominate ourselves as the triumvirate to lead uh, <laughs> europe <laughs> i think with a um, our ambition is or leaving itself and it's time to end this <laughs> before it gets even more out of hand. From me, Yulia Zoza, and my friends, Giselle Donnelly and Dalibor Hodge. Thank you for listening to the Eastern Front, a podcast dedicated to security challenges that have erupted along the line from the Baltic to the Black Sea. You can find more episodes and additional content on our website, AEI.org. Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Please get in touch with us on Twitter using the hashtag EasternFrontPod. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider subscribing, rating, and reviewing us. Thank you, and goodbye.